Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. First one of 2024. I'm sure we'll have a lot of things for me to moan and howl and rant and rave and go on about another year of uh, news and insanity. I'll be here to cover it and looking forward to it. I'm sure there's going to be some good news and good things to look forward to. We're off to a fresh start. I'll be grumpy because that's my nature, but uh, I still do want to maintain a degree of optimism. If you did catch my column in the the standard this year, year end one, I, I point out, we've got a lot to look forward to, but it's kind of us up to us to make sure we have a good year, guys, not necessarily up to everyone else to do it on your behalf. Good to see you guys checking in on the comment scroll over there. We got Doug and uh, Mr. Sharp from Saskatchewan, Mr. Stanley. Yes, use that comment scroll. We are live, or at least for those of you who are watching it live. If you're on the Cowboy Network, this is a recorded version, I'm afraid. But uh, send me questions, send me comments, send them to my guest. And uh, I don't necessarily read them all out, but I do read them all. I see them there in the scroll. Uh, later on, I'm going to have a guest coming up. Uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, people might know him as the food professor. He's been on a lot of radio shows, TV, does a lot of columns, and he writes on things like grocery prices, grocers, food in general. He's a specialist in it, and that was a big subject in 2023. I suspect uh, food security and prices are going to be a big one going into 2024, so it should be a, a really good conversation with, with Mr. Charlebois there as well. Uh, so yeah, let's get on to the news and things that have got me going today and so i'm looking forward to it like i said with some optimism but with some ranting on my part as usual as well so alberta premier danielle smith she's charging into 2024 with a mandate to take on alberta's bloated intractable healthcare bureaucracy and her success or failure in that task is going to impact how healthcare is managed across all of canada because you can rest assured every premier in canada is watching smith closely on this one i mean let's face it Canada's healthcare system stinks, and no province is an exception. Costs are going up every year, while access is going down. People are dying on waiting lists, and the lists are only getting longer. Citizens are finally realizing it, and I think that's what's encouraging, you know, and empowering some politicians. They're realizing the vaunted reputation of Canada's healthcare system is a myth. But still, we've got defenders of the status quo fighting tooth and nail whenever anybody speaks of reforming the system or even changing a few little things, much less acting on it. Unions, bureaucrats, assorted socialist activists, they refuse to accept that the system's broken and they're doing everything possible to prevent anybody from fixing it. Now, as more and more Canadians find themselves, their loved ones suffering under the broken system, the appetite for change is finally growing. And Daniel Smith is the first premier to really stick her neck out on the issue. And her battle, though, is just beginning. I mean, she began by cutting from the top with Alberta's massive health care management bureaucracy. Shortly after she became premier a little over a year ago, her government fired Chief Medical Officer Dina Hinshaw. Then she fired the entire Alberta Health Services Board. That's the bureaucracy that runs Alberta's uh, health care. And finally, she fired Dr. Verna Yu from her position of CEO at AHS. Not Premier Smith personally doing all this, but under her guidance, the government did. Now, the NDP and the unions and the rest of the usual suspects, of course, they were apoplectic. Legacy media members and activists alike, they rallied in 2023 in the spring election to ensure Smith didn't win. They failed. Smith won. And now she does have a real mandate to reform that system. And it looks like she's going to go for it. Since the election, Premier Smith has split Alberta Health Services into several different entities. Now, I, ostensibly, this is to allow for more specialized policies and different aspects of health care. But there's likely, and there likely is some merit to that. But more importantly, and more likely, that organization is split up because it makes it harder for the bureaucrats to put up an organized front in hindering reforms. Premier Smith warned when she won the last election in one of her speeches, she said she won't let herself be slow rolled by the bureaucracy. 
But it appears that Alberta Health Services managers didn't get the message as they've been dragging their heels on mandates to improve service. I mean, one simple mandate, for example, was with ambulance services. Tens of thousands of trips are made every year using fully equipped ambulances crewed by paramedics to transport non-emergency patients. It's a terrible waste of resources and it ties up highly trained workers and highly specialized equipment when we don't need to. The mandate was handed down for AHS to seek some private contractors to take over some of the role of the non-emergency patient transports. It's simple, common sense, and it's a big problem and it frees up ambulances. Instead of taking the mandate seriously, though, AHS bureaucrats devised a ridiculous set of conditions and created a number of barriers for any private contractors trying to seek the contracts. They're moving as slowly as possible, and they're continuing to find excuses not to approve applications. Meanwhile, Alberta is literally hitting situations where regions have run out of ambulance service, including just on New Year's Eve this year in major cities. Premier Smith has had enough of it, and she's laying down the law. In a recent interview, she made no bones about it, and she said... That's what our focus is. This is a quote from her. It's firing the managers who we have paid to solve these problems and they've allowed the problems to perpetuate and they've done nothing about them. Yeah, the premier's coming. It's bold to the point and unequivocal. Managers have better prove they're getting things done or they're going to be fired. It only makes sense. It's not an unreasonable expectation in the private sector and it shouldn't be with healthcare bureaucrats either. Of course, again, the usual suspects have gone wild. They're claiming Smith has overstepped her role or mandate and that she hasn't had the right to make those decisions. Well, I call BS on that. Daniel Smith was elected as Alberta's premier to do exactly this sort of thing. If an elected premier can't call the shots with the largest public bureaucracy in the province, who can? And who should? Union heads? Activists? The leader of the opposition? No, you guys didn't win the bloody election, so too damn bad. The tail's been wagging the dog for too long at all levels of government. I mean, we watched that in Calgary City Hall. It was almost nauseating watching elected councillors being called onto the carpet for questioning senior bureaucrats and city managers. If elected officials don't hold the bureaucrats to account, who will? Nobody. In fact, nobody has for years, and look where it got us. Shaking up the Canadian healthcare system has been considered political blasphemy for way too long. The system's failing, and thankfully, Premier Smith is willing to break away from Canadian dogma, become an apostate, and get the job done. The Battle of Wills is just beginning, though but I'm betting on Smith winning it. And when Smith wins and health care begins to improve in Alberta, rest assured other premiers who are too cowardly to put their uh, necks on the line will follow. Alberta's lucky to be in a province with a premier willing to lead. Her actions and tenacity are going to benefit us all within and outside of Alberta, and it's about time. All right, that's what I've got to say on those things today. Let's see what else is going on out there outside of my control. Though we're going to have a news check-in from the intrepid Jonathan Bradley and see what's going on out there. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? Good, Corey. How about you? All right, all right. Finished with the holidays, ready to get on, like I said, with cursing and ranting and raving for a whole new year. So what are you breaking on now, Jonathan? Well, it's been a busy morning in the newsroom, and we still got plenty more to come. So right now on the site, on our front page, the main story is uh, Christia Freeland built for limos and taxis in Toronto. She spent a few thousand dollars on uh, going around the greater Toronto area uh, with limos and taxis, despite her saying that she spent, uh, that she would only travel with climate uh, friendly options like walking and taking public transit. Um, we have a story about the Sask Energy Minister maintaining the carbon tax slash won't affect rebates. Um, this is because the Saskatchewan government has suspended uh, the carbon tax on home heating and uh, there are the climate action incentive payments that uh, people get from a carbon tax. Um, we have a column from Michelle Sterling about uh, the pension fund 
and it being used to fund climate change initiatives. So that's uh, on the opinion side. We have a piece that just went up uh, earlier this morning about Janice Irwin praising Edmonton for showing up for Palestine, um, which is kind of funny because I'm not sure if she knows what happens to people like her in Palestine and it's not good. Um, and then we also got a column that I wrote. Um, I was in Toronto over Christmas and I know many Calgarians love to insult uh, Toronto and say that it's a hellhole and garbage and all that. And my column challenge that premise by offering five reasons why Toronto is not that terrible. That's a pretty controversial stance to be taking with the Western Standard, uh, Jonathan. You can <laughs> expect a lot of emails coming at you on that one for, for daring. to you know, Speaking of political blasphemy, and Alberta has blasphemy to say there's anything nice about Toronto. Well, um, I, the column's been up for, I think, about almost a day now, and I haven't got a single nasty email from it yet. So if any of your viewers want to send me a nasty email, uh, the email is jbradley at westernstandard.news, and I'm more than happy to read all the nasty insults uh, we'll send my way. Well, I'll start typing up my email for you right after. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks for writing it up. It is good to have a variety. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for bringing us up to date on what's going on in the news today, Jonathan. Thank you, Corey. All right. Thank you. That is our Jonathan Bradley sitting in for Dave Naylor, our news editor, who usually comes in to give us the update, but he's taking a well-deserved break over the holidays right now. This is why I like to remind everybody the reason we got guys like Jonathan and others out there writing all these news stories and columns is because you guys have been subscribing. So uh, I like to remind you, thank you very much, those who have subscribed already. And if you haven't subscribed, start off the new year the right way, guys. $9.99 a month, uh, $100 for a year. You get full access, get past that annoying paywall and get uh, all of those columns and news copy directly. And it supports us. It lets us keep rolling like this so we don't have to become dependent on the government uh, or any other outside sources for our uh, news content. And uh, we all win. And I can keep working. I can keep turning your ear and keep ranting at you. So, I, I, you know, before I get to my guests, I'm looking forward to speaking of media. This is something that came up on uh, the, the, the AP. It's a, it's a news wire and, and a lot of... Um, you know, news organizations will take these uh, stories and they, you know, they pay a subscription service, they put them up and uh, they'll just take the headline quite often and just plant that right in there. But this one was really something else. Uh, it's Associated Press. And it said, Harvard president's resignation highlights a new conservative weapon against colleagues. And it says plagiarism. Okay. So, I mean, if people haven't been keeping up, it's been pretty controversial. The, the now former president of Harvard, I mean, one of the most, uh, you know, highly reputed uh, post-secondary institutions in the world, uh, Claudine Gay was in there. And, and most of it really hit the fan during some testimony when her and a couple of other university heads kept twisting in circles and refusing to condemn uh, the, some of the very blatant uh, hate speech and intimidation and activities being done on campuses by activists over the Israel and uh, Gaza conflict going on. And it really caused a lot of embarrassment. It certainly upset a whole lot of people. And, uh, you know, something if you read between the lines, and, and some people were pretty blunt about it, there are some uh, uh, Jewish uh, business people and, and some people of a very heavy means who were very large donors to institutions like Harvard, and they were quite upset, and they made it clear that they weren't going to be sending money to that institution any longer if uh, the, the president was going to be permissive on those things. And she still doubled down on that. But what it led to then was more people getting on her case and searching into her a little more. Who is this person? Uh, uh, and they looked and found that 
uh, among many of her, her things she's published as an academic, as at the head of a, a university that big, uh, including her dissertation, she was a serial plagiarist. She had been lifting her material from the work of others. I mean, you can be inspired by the work of others as long as you, of course, give credit to it and, and you source it, but she didn't do that. And it wasn't a case of somebody just doing it once. I mean, a one-off, an error, a student time when you were too hungover and you just had to get something in. No, this was kind of actually kind of chronic and so on. And finally, the pressure came up and uh, Ms. Gay resigned her position from, from being the president. Fine, and, and there'll be a lot more discussion on that as, as time passes. But to see this headline come up and talk about now, plagiarism will be a weapon against colleges used by conservatives. Where on earth did you guys get this? I, I mean, it's not like conservatives invented this as a new offense to be committed by academics. It's been done before. That's why there's a word for it. And it's frowned upon. It certainly is. These are the people we're expecting to lead. These are the people we're expecting to think. We're expecting them to guide us, to offer original interpretation and analysis and studies. And if they're just taking it from other people, cut and pasting it, then it's a big problem. It's nothing conservatives invented. It's not a new bar or standard that's been set that we expect academia to stand by. Likewise, in journalism, if I was just copying my columns and just splattering them out there, guys, I would hear about it pretty darn fast. I would be fired pretty darn quickly. And whoever originally wrote them would probably be sending me some legal notices pretty quickly as well. I mean, I can quote from other columnists and news stories, of course, but you source it, you reference it. But you've got to write your own stuff. This isn't new. And to, if I were called out on, if I were doing that and some people noticed it and found it, it's pretty easy now in the social media world and the day and age where you could search things. And I got fired. Would headlines be saying that I was held to an unfair standard by left-wing activists because they called me out for my plagiarism? No, they're just saying that guy's full of crap and he doesn't deserve to be putting columns out if he can't write his own stuff. Either way, this is the sort of thing, the sort of headline that leads to more mistrust with media. I mean, this wasn't a column. This was, a, at least it was presented as news copy. This wasn't opinion. So where are you coming up with this, this conservative weapon against uh, colleges? And it was just bizarre. And of course, CTV picked it up and just planted that story in verbatim. Like I said, a lot of uh, media does that. We use Blacklock's Reporter a lot, but of course we always say where we got our stuff from. You use Newswires. We, we have a lot of reporters. We get a lot of original content. But we, we're careful with what, we're, what we curate. And if we see a headline as loaded and as bad as that, rest assured, we aren't going to print it. All right. Well, that's enough of that. Let's get on to something else with our guest. I've been looking forward to chatting with him for a while. I've really enjoyed watching him uh, and reading his columns on social media on X. Uh, hear him on the radio now and then. It's uh, known as the food professor as well as Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. And, and you speak on, I guess, all things food. Th thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Mr. Charlebois. Well, thank you for the invitation. Happy New Year to you. Yes, and, and to yourself. Uh, you know, as far as, I guess, your specialty, your, your trade and talking about food, food security, food prices, supply chains, I mean, you really cover it all. 2024 was really a year when you, or 2023, where, where you, your, your specialty really came into the news a lot. People got very concerned about food inflation. Uh, you know, we're, we're, the wallets are getting thinner. Food is a necessity for people. People were getting upset. But then there was a lot of, well, as, as is normal, a lot of politics started getting played. And uh, 
a lot of fingers were getting pointed, and, and I, I found your voice to be good for correcting the record a lot and just kind of putting an unvarnished uh, view on that. Like, I guess I'll start with a simple question. Have Canadians been getting gouged by, by food retailers in the last year? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, it depends how you defaulting. I mean, for some economists, uh, allowing companies to make $1 is, is too much. And so I've always asked uh, some of the experts out there and politicians, uh, well, if uh, right now companies are making too much money, how much is too much? And we've never gotten a clear answer to that. My answer to you clearly, uh, Corey, when you look at the evidence, when you actually look at verified, audited um, financial reports coming from companies, there is no evidence of gouging. If you look at gross margins, which to me is probably the most important metric, it's you look at revenues, you look at the cost of goods. If that changes uh, due to inflation, you'll notice. I mean, you'll notice. And uh, and for the big three. Empire Sobeys, Loblaws, and Metro, all three ghost margins have not changed in five years. And so that's why it's difficult to say, well, there's gouging going on. However, and this is a big however, margins are actually quite high compared to the U.S. Uh, they're double what they are in the U.S. And we've seen some uh, some shortfalls in Ottawa with uh, with the bread price fixing scandal, for example, the investigation began on going on for eight years. So I can't um, I can't blame Canadians for 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 being upset about what's going on. I, I actually totally understand why they're upset because they they feel unprotected. But as far as gouging goes, just the evidence is just not there. Yeah, well, and that's what I appreciate is you don't give a full pass to the heads of these grocers as well and such. There's been some sort of controversy over the proposed uh, code of conduct and Galen Weston and some of you corrected him on some of the things uh, uh, he's been claiming as he's sort of trying to squirm to avoid that code of conduct. I mean, he's, he's, he's not a, a monster, but he's not an altruist or, or uh, you know, a charitable person either. Oh, he's he's out there to make lunch. money. Of yeah. course, he runs a, he runs a, a very well managed company. By the way, uh, in fact, I would say that all three main grocers are well managed, and, and that's why they've been successful in pushing away competition like Target, uh, and uh, which came in uh, and left in 2014 as quickly. And and you we have seen Aldi and Little. Uh, both companies are are now in the U.S. They've 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 looked at Canada. It's just not recent. They've been looking at Canada for quite some time, but it's difficult to get in to the Canadian market for two reasons. One, it's it's not an attractive market, especially when you see a federal government constantly um, inviting CEOs back to Ottawa and, and question them about profiteering. I I don't think that's an appealing strategy for for any for any company looking into to Canada the other issue of course is is the fact that really uh, the Canadian market is dominated by two players they dictate the rules if you understand how food distribution works in Canada you quickly understand that both Walmart and Loblaws will make and break companies they have too much power uh, and and that's kind of what Australia had prior to adopting the code uh, and the UK as well. And since then, you, we've seen food prices become much more stable over time. You don't eliminate inflation. Of course, you want inflation. You want food prices to increase over time. 
but in both uh, Australia and the UK, food prices have actually been quite quite stable compared to Canada, and that's probably due to the code. So that code of conduct, what we're talking about, that's an industry-managed uh, code and, and sort of thing, more of an industry association, not a government-invoked uh, legislation. That's a, that's a good question, Corey. It's a fair question because a lot of people, I notice that a lot of people are, th are thinking, well, the code is really about the government tweaking market conditions. That's not exactly it. It has nothing to do with prices. As Galen Weston alluded in Ottawa, wrongly so, uh, it is more about uh, contractual terms. You see, what's different in the food industry is that you have to pay your customer in order to do business with that customer. So Loblaws will receive five, six million dollars from PepsiCo uh, to allow Pepsi to sell Lay's chips. Just one example. And every year, Loblaws will change terms. We'll say this year we'll increase your fee by this much no questions asked, no discussions, unilaterally. And that has bothered suppliers. And that's why it's not a coincidence that we saw Nestle leave the cane market, Kleenex just left the cane market. We'll see more companies leave the cane market because, again, uh, Loblaws will set rules, Walmart as well, and others will follow along. So it's it, unlike the U.S. or other places, it's just tough. It's much tougher to offer consumers more choices. And with more choices, you'll, you'll get more competition, which is why the code of conduct is so critical to support independent grocers and suppliers as well. Yeah, people forget that the competition aspect isn't just a benefit to the consumer. When you get suppliers, when they can really push suppliers around like that with a limited options for the suppliers to go to, it harms them. Uh, but I mean, we, we don't want to go down the road, say, if, it almost reminds me, though, of the old days of Microsoft when it really dominated the market. And they used to push every other software company into a corner and say, you know, if you're going to be carried by the Microsoft platforms, we got to cut a deal or, or we just won't carry you. And of course, there really were only three platforms uh, to be had. So they, they held a lot of power. And I think it took antitrust hearings to break that down. Now, the grocery market shouldn't be as complicated, but I guess that's the sort of thing. We can't just force competition to come into the country, but the code of conduct might reduce the amount they're pushing around the suppliers a bit. It would correct some of the mistakes that we made in the past. Uh, my 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 reading uh, of of the situation right now is that they 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 were three major transactions that really allowed this oligopoly to emerge. Uh, in 1998, Law bought Provigo in Quebec. That's number one. Number two, Metro bought AMP in Ontario. That created the other grocer. And lastly, in 2013. Uh, Empire Sobase bought Safeway out west. That created those three big players. And of course, along the way, we saw non-traditionals like Costco, Walmart uh, become quite successful in selling food to Canadians. And that's why we, we're in the situation we are in. In the U.S., they don't really need a code. Why? Because all Washington is all over some of these mergers. For example, right now, Kroger is trying to buy Albertsons, so number two is trying to buy number four in the U.S., and they, they're blocking the deal because they don't feel that the deal would be in the best interest of, of, of Americans right now. So those two companies are under tremendous pressure. When, when, when Loblaw bought Provigo or Metro 
bought AMP or even Sobeys when it acquired Safeway, we barely heard anything in the news. Nobody cared. And that's why we're in trouble right now. So uh, part of the problem, I mean, there, there's advantages, though it, it's bad for competition. There's advantages of having a few large players because those large economies of scale can allow them to keep the consumer prices somewhat low as well in a relative way. Like if you break it up into too many small players, we could end up paying more as well. Exactly. And, and here's the thing about Canada. So we're only 40 million people in one of the largest countries and well, the second largest country in the world. Distribution costs are really, really high. So you have a lot of small towns uh, where you are uh, in, in Alberta and elsewhere where you only have one option uh, left to buy food because of uh, of of the consolidation that we've seen over the years. So a lot of Canadians are actually uh, being held hostage as a result of these acquisitions without really having a say. And and so Washington right now is very careful. They'll be looking at, at transactions in a very granular way. So they'll look at New Haven, Connecticut. How many stores will they lose uh, compared to before? And things like that. In Canada, we only look at uh, the national uh, landscape and see whether or not Canadians win. But I, I've always argued to Minister Champagne himself, whenever there's a transaction coming in, we need to actually look at uh, all aspects of the deal. And we've actually had the privilege to work with the Competition Bureau in three occasions of the last five years. And you can tell that they're not well tooled to assess longitudinal risks understanding how a transaction could impact um, our food distribution landscape over time. And now we're paying for that. So uh, something that really broke a lot of trust, even if it was, you know, I mean, the average consumer didn't feel it a lot, but it's the principle of the matter. You mentioned it earlier was the, the bread price fixing uh, issue. I mean, we, we heard a lot about it. Uh, People don't like to think that they're being manipulated, I guess, with what they purchase, even if it only adds up to a little it, bit. It costs a billion dollars to Canadians. Like, that's real money. That's a lot I of mean, money when it's added it, up. It's yeah. a lot of money. And uh, frankly, when you look at the U.S., for example, there's one executive that we got caught uh, fixing prices for canned tuna. That person is in jail right now and paid a fine, I believe, of over $100,000, okay? In tuna, canned tuna. In Canada, we gave a pass to Galen Weston and Loblaw. We gave immunity to Loblaw and, and Western bakeries. And so that really became a problem of trust. And so really right now, what we need to do is focus more on, uh, well, how can these feel and how we can protect them? So I guess uh, another issue we have that's a little different, but it, it affects a lot of grocery staples. And I, I've heard you mention it occasionally is supply management, which covers our, our poultry, our dairy <laughs> products. Uh, I just thought I'd yeah. throw that in towards Our the favorite end. topic. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, it's not a panacea to, to reduce grocery prices or anything, but it's funny when Canadians say they're upset about monopolies, they, they seem to constantly overlook one of the worst monopolies of them all. And, and that's the producers of those products right now. But there's no indication anybody's going to change that anytime soon, I imagine. Canadians have a, a very bizarre relationship with, uh, with, with concepts like monopolies and oligopolies. So uh, on the one side, Canadians want uh, government to intervene. They want to be protected. They want monopolies. Uh, 
until pricing becomes an issue. And uh, and so in the case of supply management, uh, you're so first of all, you're looking at farm gate uh, issues, farmers and farmers are incredibly trusted by the cane public. But at the same time, a lot of Canadians actually don't realize how supply management is inflating prices at retail. It is no matter what. You, you say, no matter what the dairy farmers are saying or poultry farmers or chicken farmers, it, it is pushing food prices higher, okay? Now, is that something we can get rid of? Uh, I've been studying marketing boards for 25 years, and uh, my, my conclusion is that as much as we hate supply management, we can't get rid of it. Uh, it's just... Unlike the the Europe uh, where I was in 2015, when they ended supply management, a lot of farmers wanted out because they were levies, and the system actually did cost a lot of money to farmers. In Canada, good luck finding one farmer who's against the system. All of them really support the system. So I've always argued instead of abolishing quotas, let's make sure that we actually make supply management more efficient and more competitive. Because right now it is not competitive. Uh, in fact, marketing boards are doing everything they can to suppress competition without consumers knowing. Yeah, and I, I don't expect it to change soon. That's part of what I asked. I, I cornered uh, Mr. Uh, Pierre Polyev on the show one time and asked him with that one as well. I don't think he loves <laughs> going there, but uh, he at least was honest and said, no, it's not an area that they're looking to, to change or get rid of it. This they, he can't afford it. Yeah, politicians just can't afford it because they're they're so powerful. Uh, I've always argued instead of sending out checks uh, in compensation for trade deals we're signing all over the world, we should take that money and buy some farmers out as soon as possible because some farmers actually do want to compete, but some of them don't. They just don't want to compete, and so I would keep the great the very competitive, efficient farmers and grow their business with exports as well and create a new set of quotas and new categories, which is actually in our supply management 2.0 plan, which we released, I believe it was two years ago now with the University of Guelph. It's all in the plan. And all you need to do is basically uh, eliminate farmers who don't want to compete and build a system which allows uh, which allows the, the sector to grow even more. Because right now we're on the path of, of seeing more farms disappear. We're, we're going to get down to 5,000 dairy farms by 2030. And the Cane Dairy Commission will continue to rubber stamp uh, decisions that are supported by dairy farmers instead of looking at competitiveness overall. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. I appreciate you've done a lot of work on it. Um, before I let you go, then, uh, perhaps if you could just give a bit of a prediction on what consumers can look forward to in 2024 with uh, grocery prices and, and where can we find information on where your work is? Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, they they should be looking forward to 2024 compared to 2023. I mean, 2023 was, was tough. Uh, we were asked to spend more money on shelter. Uh, the other necessity of life. And so when we show up at the grocery store, we were spending less despite inflation. It's not going to happen in 2024. In fact, we actually are expecting some price wars at the center of the store, probably midway through 2024. Things are tightening up in, in the economy, and, and that's going to benefit consumers overall. Uh, 
so that's my reading, my very quick reading of what, what is about to happen in 2024. So all good news, well, better news, I guess, for consumers overall. As far as our work goes, you can just uh, look up all of our reports. Uh, they're available on our website. You can just go on the uh, Dalhousie University website, the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, and you'll find all of our reports, and they're available for free in both English and French. Excellent. Well, I appreciate again the work you do, and and you're you're being able to come on to talk to us today. And again, it sounds you know at least a bit optimistic. Things optimistic that things have stabilized a little into the next year. We've had some crazy years, and uh, well, food's oh, yeah. there's, no, there's no getting around it. The, so. the one the one thing that really concerns us right now is the uh, is what's happening in Israel. Uh, if 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 the conflict broadens, and it may it may happen, that could actually uh, that could uh, affect food prices worldwide, not just in Canada, worldwide, due to uh, the regions linked to to oil specifically, and so that's something that we're watching very closely. Because in 2008, that's exactly what happened: oil went up, and everything else went up as well. And so we don't want that in 2024. No, that yeah, there's a lot that's beyond our control, and all we can do is watch for it and uh, you know, just hope for some sort of easing of the conflict over there. Yeah, absolutely. So- all right. Well, thank you very much again. And, and uh, also uh, on X, you're very uh, prolific on there. Uh, so I just encourage folks to look you up. And, uh, well, I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you for inviting me, Corey. All right. Take so care. That was Dr. Sylvain Charlebois of Dalhousie University. And, yeah, look, he's got all sorts of good stuff, all things food. Uh, and it's the Agri-Foods Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And he, he covers those things because there's been a lot of discussion on it. And a lot has been heated. A lot has been misguided. What I like about him, I, I'm all about bias. I'm all about ranting. I'm all about raving. Uh, Mr. Charlebois, Dr. Charlebois is, is about the facts. He just sticks to it. Uh, as I said, he doesn't give a pass to the big grocery producers. But at the same time, he doesn't give a pass to the government. People like uh, Jagmeet Singh when they're trying to demonize grocery retailers and say they're gouging or, you know, gougeflation and all of those terms they use. He just sticks to the facts. Um, something he mentioned, others have mentioned, even the Competition Bureau in Ottawa mentioned, though, and they, they looked into it. We don't have enough competitors here, but how do you get them in? Uh, you know, Mr. Charlebaugh was, was good at pointing out, like, how do you want to bring in a new player to Canada when we're prone to taking our retailers and dragging them before uh, parliamentary committees and, and grilling them for them daring to make money? It's not an atmosphere that a business can say, hey, I'm going to pick up, you know, sticks and and set up over in that country because I want to take that abuse. Uh, Supply management, another interesting one. I mean, I've done shows on it. We could do whole shows on it. I see Terry uh, O'Malley picking it, you know, talking about that. Uh, Bernier lost the uh, CPC leadership based on the supply management. I mean, it was a one point difference back then in in the the winning of that leadership. And there's no doubt that uh, a deal was struck with the dairy cartel. And it is a cartel to uh, support uh, the other candidate over supply management. They were a very effective and powerful lobby group. And uh, so we're saying it's weird with Canada. We have a love affair with these 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 cartels, these monopolies at times, even though we're, we're kind of getting hooped by them. But getting rid of it, uh, as I, I said as well, I, I did ask uh, Polyev. Trudeau is certainly not going to get rid of it. And Polyev at least was honest and said, no, he's not going to either. But I, I'm going to look more into that because I haven't read that whole thing with that, that 2.0 plan. It sounds like uh, at Dalhousie University with, with uh, Professor Charlebois have been talking about ways we can maybe ease out of it. Because as you said, there, there are dairy producers who want to get creative. They want 
to open their markets. They want to do more, but they're constrained. So maybe the ways that we can break out some of the producers and yes, incrementally work ourselves out of the system because just trying to flick a switch and end it would cause uh, more disruption in the, in the longer term uh, and we would all have a lot of trouble. Uh, another thing, yeah, you know, that, so it sounds kind of good, uh, but yeah, Wild Rose is bringing up another good one, uh, one of our commenters, ground beef, 10 bucks for a 550 gram package in, in province full of cows. This is in Alberta. And yeah, we are really taking it as consumers when it comes to beef. That's been an ongoing thing too. And they're all fighting with each other because ranchers are, are saying they're not making any more money than they used to. And, and grocers margins, as, as we've seen, it's been studied and studied and checked and looked at. Uh, they're narrow. They're five, six percent. I mean, they might be able to come down a little more in, in the States. You know, they're more like four percent, three percent, but they, you can't come much lower. They've got to make money. So where is that, all that extra cost coming in with beef? Why is it costing so much bloody money? Uh, and, uh, you know, processing is one of them. I, I know in Alberta, we've got what, like, I think in Canada, we've really only got two really large meat processors. So again, getting back to uh, monopolies and oligopolies and the lack of competition, I got a feeling we're getting, we're taking it a bit there without doubt, uh, but we should be questioning it. Uh, Marie Perrin's saying we should, we need to buy direct from the farmer. You know, and I've had that discussion before. I had a lot of it on X. Uh, I live in Prittis. It's an acreage just south of Calgary. And uh, most of my neighbors are ranchers actually in that area. It's ranch country and we know people and, and uh, Jane and I have bought uh, quarters and halves of beef and filled the freezer with it. For one, you know what, it, maybe when you add it all together with some of the prime cuts versus the ground and everything, you save a little bit of money. But to be honest, after getting the beef cut and packaged and all of that, the price was pretty similar to what I would get in buying it, say at Costco or, or somewhere like that. Uh, the producer got a little bit better money because we were dealing directly with her rather than, than uh, you know, going through the rest of the process. So it's good that way. But the other thing is not everybody has that ability. The only way to make that cost worthwhile, you have to have the connection with the producer. You have to have a deep freeze to keep all of that meat. You've got to have the capital on hand. I mean, let's say your parents with a tight budget and a bunch of kids, you can't afford to tie up $1,200 worth of meat in your freezer. You just don't have that laying around. But if you don't buy it in a volume that big, you're not going to save any money. So, I mean, it's an option for some people. Absolutely. It's good for the producers and it's good for individuals. But for most people, people in the city and that too, it's it's not quite um, uh, as viable a way to get out of the, the, the challenge as others. But, you know, we, we, food is, I mean, everything gets called a right. Everything gets called this and that, but food is a need. I mean, there's no getting around that one. Nobody can debate that. We, we don't have food. We die. Simple as that. So we're of course, very concerned about the price of food, the affordability of food. We, we can't avoid it. It's not one of those things saying, well, it's overpriced. I'll just not buy it this year. So we've got to try and keep those, those, those per, those costs in line. And, uh, it's ongoing. So I mean, having those discussions, though, watching this, seeing what's really going on out there, to some degree, uh, you know, our demographics are, are the size of our country. Uh, Professor Charlebar brought that up. You know, Canada's huge. You got to move those products across large distances to get them to people in small towns. You're just not going to have the volume. You're going to pay a little bit more. I worked years up in Inuvik, you know, I mean, up there, the, the prices are through the roof for food because everything either gets the dry goods all get brought up by barge in, in summertime. And uh, some stuff comes in winter by truck on the Dempster highway. And sometimes the, when the ice bridge isn't in yet, 
and the ferry's been shut down. There's nothing coming by truck for a, a long period of time. You just can't avoid high costs. Everything else has to be flown in. But I mean, that's not gouging. That's just market realities with where you are. And it just kind of gets smaller and smaller as you get to larger population centers. As somebody was pointing out, a lot of the processing and everything's happening in, in Mississauga and Toronto area. But that's, of course, again, because you've got a, a dense population of people you can serve in a nearby area for trucking, for processing, for sourcing, for warehousing. It's an advantage. So we're always going to pay a little more than our American neighbors, I think, to a degree, because we just don't have that, that large population density. But we want to keep it as reasonable as we can. That, that's the thing. Uh, something else he, he mentioned with, at the end, which was it's kind of scary. If people want to look at a lot of history, uh, the price shocks that really hit in the 70s, and it was during the Yom Kippur War in Israel, which we're in a very similar situation now, uh, except back then it was Egypt and, and Syria being a pain in the butt rather than uh, uh, Gaza. But the war went on. It shot the price, though, because other countries were involved. It shot the price of oil through the roof. That was the catalyst that actually led to the National Energy Program. Uh, gave Trudeau Sr. the excuse to try and screw Alberta with that. And so we get circumstances beyond our control that affect our prices here, whether we like it or not. And we always want to prepare for those. I guess you still want to keep your base costs as low as you can so that if something like that happens, it's still not going to hit you any harder than it has to. And, and food, uh, I, I guess the two words that, you know, there's a few words we want affordability. You want stability. You want to make sure it's available. I mean, food shortages, don't forget the supply chain breaks and things that happened before empty shelves. That's kind of freaky to see that happening. You know, you want that stability and you want reliability, right? You know, you want it to be there and, uh, it's just an ongoing thing, but we politicize it when we're demonizing the heads of the uh, uh, grocers out there or when we're also going after, you know, even going after Trudeau. Hey, I'm no friend or fan of his by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not necessarily directly responsible for the price of groceries that are getting on my table day by day. Though there are better things he could certainly be doing for the Canadian economy to help with it. So let's get on to Trudeau. I haven't talked enough about him yet today. Everybody wants to hear about Justin, right? He's down in Jamaica tanning his pimply butt. So whilst he's doing that, let's talk about what he's supposed to be doing up here. Uh, the carbon tax. You know, this is still there. Peter LaFontaine bringing up the carbon tax hit everything that moves in Canada. And it's true. And that's what we're talking about energy costs. And then when you put a carbon tax on top of that energy, everything goes up. It's a tax on everything. It's like a GST. Even if it's kind of hidden and indirect, it costs us. And Trudeau had to admit it. He, he wouldn't say it outright. He's a mealy-mouthed, disingenuous man with no understanding of economics. But his policies admitted it. When uh, we see now from Blacklock's reporter, they came out with some uh, records from the Privy Council showing that the federal researchers were you know, researching and polling using our tax dollars. And they realized in Atlantic Canada, which had been sort of exempt from carbon tax pressures and expense for the, most of the time it was there, once they started having to pay the bill, <laughs> oh, bye, I'm not into that. Suddenly they switched their allegiance from, the allegiance from the liberals to the conservatives. Up to 24 liberal seats were going to be lost. So what does Trudeau do? He carves them an exemption. And it, it just completely undercut what that tax is. Because if you really believe the tax is saving the world, then you shouldn't be able to say, well, yeah, it's saving the world, but we can make an exception over here or over here. And... Uh, if it's supposedly revenue neutral, then it shouldn't be hurting you having it hitting people in the Maritimes. They knew it was going to hit them. It was going to hit the wallet. It's a tax. It's an expense. It costs you on every front. 
And uh, Trudeau just made himself look, uh, yeah, and he's still got room to go down, obviously. Made himself look dumber, and he already looked pretty darn dumb by uh, backtracking his trying his car vote. And then, of course, infuriating the rest of the nation when he, uh, you know, of course, gives exemptions to one part, but not to the other. Because we know it just means we have to pay all the more. Here's another beauty that's certain to resonate with Canadians and be popular. I see that uh, cabinet yesterday, yeah, they said they're going to waive immigration rules. For up to, and I don't believe them with much of anything, up to a thousand Gazans to come into Canada and immigrate. Because the 1.4 million that we can't sustain right now isn't enough. Let's bring in a thousand people from one of the most volatile places on the planet. And let's not pretend that a lot of those Gazans weren't supporting Hamas. Okay, Hamas didn't come out of a vacuum. People housed them. People fed them. People turned their heads when the missiles were being launched. People turned their heads when the hostages were being taken into the tunnels. These people are the people that Justin wants to bring here, as if we don't have enough of those lunatics blocking our roads, intimidating people in malls, and calling out for the death of all Jews. And that's what they call, they aren't pro-Palestine protests. They aren't <laughs> they're pro-Hamas and they're anti-Jew. Let's quit talking around circles. But hey, let's have a thousand more in Canada because that can only make it better, right? You know, no other country wants them. You know, there's more than one border with Gaza. Egypt is on the south end. They don't open it either. Why does Israel get all the blame? One of the neighbors also will not deal with them. Why? Let's talk about that. It's not our issue in Canada. We've got a lot of issues in Canada already to deal with. But oh, thank you, Justin. Let's bring a thousand people from Gaza in and just see how that fits in our culturally diverse soup. And uh, yeah, I, I can see nothing but good times coming out of this. Really, you guys, really. All right. Well, there's lots to cover and there's going to be lots more, guys. Uh, you know, we're going to be on the pipeline a little later. We're going to cover a few more things and dissect them with our, our uh, opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford and uh, other special guests going on as well. And we got lots of other special things happening at the Western Standard. I'm going to bring somebody in to cap off the show with uh, an announcement and uh, covering some things on a special that's coming up here in Calgary. And that's Mr. Finkbeiner with the draw. Hey, James. Hey, how are you, Corey? Good, good, actually. Yeah, it's, I, I missed a week. You know, I was, I was missing getting out here and inventing. Poor Jane had to put up with a lot. <laughs> just walking around your house doing your show all by yourself hey? that's right yelling at the walls and the domes <laughs> <laughs> well I, uh, I i shut off twitter notifications before i went on holidays and i didn't turn them back on until i got into the office so uh my blood pressure is actually fairly low and uh we're kicking off the new year with a giveaway so it's been uh it, it's been a nice couple of days to be back at work around here <laughs> right on well at least be take them while you got them Perfect. I, uh, I've got this ready to go. Um, so we can have two screens going with, uh, with the draw. So I've got a random number generator going here on another monitor, but, uh, we're going to draw some numbers and, uh, these first tickets that we're going to give away are for, uh, regular tickets for the Calgary event. The Calgary event is with, uh, Tucker Carlson, premier Danielle Smith, and, uh, that's going to be moderated by Brett Wilson. Uh, so let me just throw this first ticket number in here now. And uh, that's number 53. And our first winner is uh, Ed Whitman. And oh, let me see here. Uh, I just got to switch this there. There we go. I had the wrong tab up. I swear oh. I'm paying attention. 
All right, uh, the next number here is ticket number 76. Terry Chesminski, I butchered that, I'm sorry. And next ticket winner is 74, Bernadette McCaff. And our last one, our VIP winners. So the VIP winners will get a VIP meet and greet and a photo with uh, Tucker Carlson at the event. And this one is for Calgary. And the winner is ticket number 146, David Edmonds. So all of those winners for the Calgary event will be contacted by phone and uh, email at some point today. Um, we are just going to go through this list when we're done here and uh and and get a hold of everybody uh up next we have the edmonton draw we uh we actually got pretty lucky we ended up getting um extra packages of tickets for edmonton uh i just looked and it looks like the tickets are still selling for 92 dollars a piece so it, it it's awesome that we were able uh to to be able to give this many tickets away to our members our first winner here is uh Taryn Wazlako. All the Ukrainians are winning today. Well, you're at Edmonton, man. Uh, that's true. <laughs> uh, our next winner is 16. Uh Gordon Tabachnik. <laughs> uh, you know, three of my best friends are Ukrainian. You think I'd be able to pronounce a Ukrainian last name by now, but apparently not. Yeah. Up next, we have Conan Akert. There we go. That's an easy one. And next, Neil Suchuk. And the next one, Kevin Hampton. And let me just see here. We are 44, Joan Frederick. And number 28, Joyce Gannon. And our last VIP winner, uh, Edmonton, of course, is a uh, beat and greet with Tucker Carlson. This event will be with Tucker Carlson, Conrad Black, and Rex Murphy. Uh, I'm super excited for this one. I'm a huge fan of Rex. I'm trying to convince Derek to let me go. But, uh, you know, <laughs> road trips and let it, letting, letting me out of the office, that just never happens. But uh, our, our VIP package winner for Edmonton, it is ticket 138, uh, Dale Baker. So congratulations to all those winners. Thank you guys very much for your support. We appreciate you being members with the Western Standard. Uh, we're excited that this year we're going to be able to do lots of different giveaways. And uh, we're excited that this is the first one, such a big, uh, two big events for the province. Right on. Well, thanks, James. Yeah. And this is just to remind everybody, yeah, there's more than just getting access to all those columns and articles uh, on there being a Western Standard member. We do these promotions and these special sorts of access because we know these things are going to be sold out. So right on. Congratulations, folks. And uh, thanks, James. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Corey. Have a good afternoon. All right. Thanks. And for any of the rest of you still hanging in there, go on, get on, subscribe, get on to those next deals. Come on, see if you can win the next draw. Maybe 
Eh, who knows what we'll put away next. There's going to be lots of events and things happening this year. So thanks for tuning in with us today, guys. And uh, yeah, come in next week at this time and we'll do it all again with a new guest and a whole new bunch of stuff for me to complain about. <laughs>